It's Halsey with the Helicopter Podcast, and I hope you're enjoying listening to the podcast. But just to make sure that you are aware, if you would also like to watch the podcast, you can go to YouTube and check out the Helicopter Podcast YouTube channel. We post all of our podcasts to video format there. We're also doing a lot of really cool things over there, like vlogs. We did a bunch of fun stuff at HAI, including in-person interviews with all these amazing people. So do me a favor, head over to YouTube and check out the Helicopter Podcast. Hope you enjoy. And welcome to the Helicopter Podcast. I'm your guy, Halsey Scheider. And I always say it every time, I'm excited about today's episode. And gosh, I'm lucky. I have uh, just a continual line of awesome guests that uh, graciously take time to come and talk with me. And today's guest uh, is a very busy man, I'm assuming, uh, Mr. Jason Hill of Hill Helicopters. Uh, if, If you haven't heard of Hill Helicopters... Uh, and you're in the helicopter industry, I'm guessing that you've maybe been hiding under a rock or something like that. But uh, I'm so excited to talk to Jason, uh, to learn more about Jason, to learn more about Hill. Uh, Also ask some of the polarizing questions that I think kind of surround uh, Hill. So I think today is going to be a super fun podcast. Big shout out and thanks to Vertical Helicast for, of course, making this podcast possible. Uh, Mr. Hill, welcome to the Helicopter Podcast. How are you? Hi, Elsie. Uh, I'm very good, thank you. Thanks for the uh, the invite and the opportunity to talk to you. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think it's really cool. Uh, I think what you're doing is um, is no no small feat, and I'm really excited to kind of learn about that passion, learn about where all this kind of craziness and this crazy idea came into place uh, to to start your own helicopter company, effectively. Uh, but first, I kind of just want to start um, in December. I was actually at my uh, my in-laws, uh, they live in Portland, Oregon. We live over in Central Oregon. We're spending time with them. And I was uh, tuning in to the to the big reveal that you guys had for the two first aircraft that you were presenting. I think it was on December 6th or something like that. And my father-in-law is very inquisitive, and, he's, and I'm trying to explain to him, uh, he's a non-helicopter guy, what Hill Helicopters is. And the best way that I was able to explain it was kind of the analogy of like, I kind of feel like Hill Helicopters is the Tesla of, of the helicopter industry. Uh, it's innovative, it's, uh, it's disrupting, uh, and it's wildly different than what we've seen. Do you think that it's a fair analogy to, to, uh, to, to kind of compare you as, as Tesla of the helicopter world? I, I think the, there are elements of it 
the uh, I understand why people say that, but there are some stark differences as well. Um, Tesla is a is a, a company that is wildly innovative. I mean, they are breaking new ground, developing new technologies, uh, and bringing all sorts of new stuff to the to the market that hasn't been there before. Um, that's a, a really really difficult thing to do in in aviation because first you've got to develop all that technology. Then you've got to make it work. Then you've got to demonstrate demonstrate that it's safe and it's never going to fail. And then you've got to uh, get it approved. Now, getting things approved is difficult in its own right. If there isn't an approval process uh, for it, then that makes life even more difficult. So, the approach that that we've taken, um, yeah, we're, we're we're somewhat disrupting the norm in that we've brought a helicopter that's bang up to date for 2024 to the to the market. Um, we've listened very, very carefully to everything that people that have either owned helicopters privately uh, or operated helicopters in this, this size range have been asking for for decades and responded to that. But we've delivered that deliberately with a palette of a palette of technologies that have been proven in the industry for many decades. So we don't have the same level of technical risk that uh, a company like Tesla has had to manage as they bought wildly new technologies to market. So what we're doing, I, I, I'm often quoted as calling it a, a greatest hits helicopter. It's all of the bits that we, we know work really well. Uh, packaged beautifully and then manufactured in a in a vertically integrated fashion. So we make everything so that we've got end-to-end -end control of, of costs. And that's not just about the selling price of the helicopter, but it's our ability to develop the helicopter quickly. It's the our ability to iterate the product quickly, both now and as it goes through its service life. And it's our ability to, to stock and supply and support parts for the helicopter into service because we we have raw materials in one end of the factory and finish helicopters or parts out the the other end of the factory so it's really the the antidote to elements of the industry that have become quite disconnected from what the real need of the end user is so there are similarities it's a it's a new up-to-date product it answers a lot of people's uh, hopes and dreams for what the helicopter can be and what the helicopter industry can be. Uh, but our innovation isn't wild innovation like they do at Tesla. We, we, we're much more modest in the, the new technology that we're bringing to the market. These are just a collection of great ideas. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And actually that, that was this, um, a, a surprise to me actually, when I was uh, watching the reveal in December six, um, oh. I've been following along Hill for about two and a half years now. I think I jumped on a a Hill call uh, with some some individuals from your team about two two and a half years ago, and yeah. that was kind of my first immersion into Hill helicopters. And I um, I was surprised in December to hear kind of this idea of this greatest hits. And not that we have to go through every component of the Hill helicopter, but I'm curious from your perspective, what are some of the greatest hits that have already been innovated on helicopters that now you're incorporating on the HX50 and the HC50? 
Okay, yeah. Well, I mean, if you if we start start at the uh, the top, if you start with the the rotor system, then um, a three bladed composite rotor system is nothing new. Uh, a high inertia rotor system that has uh, dynamic performance in terms of auto rotation entry uh, and at the bottom of an auto rotation similar to a two hundred six. We all know and love those characteristics. It's what you would choose to have. Um, the sort of nature of the way that the blades are designed uh, is a way that we've been designing composite blades both here in Europe and uh, and in the US for many, many years. We're not inventing any of those things. These are established ways of doing those sorts of things. Um, if you look at the, the dynamics of the, the main rotor system, we've got a modest flapping hinge offset, just as you'd find in a number of other popular helicopters, which is a nice balance between um, sort of gust response and dynamic handling qualities, but still having enough control authority to manage out all of the nasties that happen in systems that don't have uh, articulated blades. Um, then if you, you come a little bit further down, the, the sort of architecture of the main rotor gearbox is very similar to what you'd find in a, in a bunch of successful helicopters that have been around for, for decades. We don't need to reinvent that stuff. We might make the components in a slightly different way, you know, uh, and we might use more modern approaches to, to manufacture, to deliver these at the most co in the most cost effective way you can. But the fundamental architecture of lots of these things has, has, has been around for forever. Um, similarly, with the uh, uh, what other aspect, aspects would I point to? Like the the undercarriage, the way that we we attach the skids on the skidded version, the oleos in the the main landing gear, uh, the fundamental swashplate arrangement and belt crank arrangement. There's nothing new in any of that. Um, the the thing that that is new is bringing all of these things under one roof for, for one prime contractor to manufacture. And that's what you, you're essentially, it's really basic business. You're essentially just cutting out all of the middlemen. Now, you, you hear some comments say, how can one company possibly do all of that? Well, if we were inventing all of this stuff, if we'd got to develop composite rotor blades and gearboxes and swashplate mechanisms and servos and undercarriage, all from scratch for the first time. That would be an impossibly big task, but we're not inventing anything, are we? These are things that we've all worked on uh, and, and seen and used and been around for decades. There's no invention here. This is a case of bringing these ideas together, doing the value engineering, and then putting them through a robust approvals process. The skill in all of this is doing that in a beautiful package. So developing a, an aerodynamic shape and a, an aesthetic to the aircraft that's going to make people want to go flying again. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very pretty looking helicopter, that's for sure. And again, I was surprised when when you were talking about the unveil of, of how you were uh, putting kind of the best hits together. Uh, and that made a lot of sense to me. I guess my question is, and maybe you've already kind of answered it a little bit because you're not maybe inventing new technologies and things like that. But I think some of the concern could also lay in this idea of is Hill in a position that they can feel comfortable in saying that not only can they produce these prototypes, but can they go to a full scale production? Uh, are you guys at that time or, or currently right now to a point where you feel really comfortable that you'll be able to take prototype to production and manufacture uh, helicopters at a high scale? 
Absolutely. Well, you see, that's one of the fundamental benefits of, of our approach. So because we make everything, to make one, you've had to develop the processes to make everything. So if you take the mechanical components as a, as a simple example, so gears, bearings, servos, bell cranks, actuators, brackets, flight controls, all the mechanical gubbins that goes into a helicopter, we've already developed the uh, designs for those components. We've developed all of the work holding and fixturing. We've developed all of the cutting strategies, the tooling, developed all of the CNC programs because you have to do that to make one. Yeah. Now there's yeah. a bunch of work that goes between that and full scale production to optimize those processes so that we can get the most output from the, the CNC machines that you can. And obviously there's a separate parallel stream of work to prove that what you've designed meets the requirements and is uh, strong enough and safe enough and has all the functional. That's what your prototyping process and your, your approvals process is for. But fundamentally scaling up for the mechanical components is really just a case of buying more and more of these machines. You know, from, from the moment we decide we're done, it's developed, the design and the production tools uh, are all set. You order your new machines, uh, there's a bunch of operational logistical things you have to do to keep them fed with material and manage the flow through the factory. But fundamentally, that's what we're doing here at DC one, two and three now. So I have no fears about scaling up all of the intricate precision components. And then similarly for the, for the composites, uh, because we produce all of that. We make the patterns, we make the molds, we make the parts, we do the trimming, we do the painting, we do everything. Um, and so once you've done uh, the, the first few of them, all of those processes are, are nailed. By the time you've got to the point that you've approved your, your prototype, done the optimization you want on your production tools, it's a case of making more sets of molds to be able to make more of them in parallel. And again, I'm talking down totally the, the huge scale of logistics that goes into turning those individual processes into a manufacturing process. But that's what production engineering is all about. And we have a spectacularly capable production engineering director and production engineering team. So we're really just doing more of the same. It's not like we've built a prototype helicopter with a bunch of components made by separate companies in our garage. Uh, and then we've got to think about how we make a thousand a year of these. It's nothing like that. The reason that we've taken a very staged process, made staged progress through our development is we're not only developing the helicopter, but in parallel, we're developing all of the manufacturing methods and processes that are necessary to build that at whatever scale we choose. So yeah, we are perfectly well equipped. And right now we are uh, already scaling up the facilities that we've got to cope with the additional prototypes and then entry into production, physical facilities. Uh, myself and my production director are off to Japan uh, in the beginning of March to go and place the orders for a large number of production machines. So that, cause these things all have lead times. So placing the order for those, so the machines are on their way to us in time for us to need them. So yeah, we're we're very confident about about that. We're very confident. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, I think that when I talk to a lot of uh, people when we're talking about Hill, that's that's a, a a snag point for some people. And I think to hear it from you guys that you've been essentially in tandem, not only creating the prototype but also creating the the long term process, it makes sense to me at least. And, and uh, I think. 
I think that the other thing that you've got to be uh, got to be aware of is that engineering companies do this all the time. You know, we're talking about helicopters, but companies in engineering introduce new products all the time. And you start with a prototype in a very small facility. And when you've got that right, you scale up to production. But to produce that prototype, if you were the people that produced it, you are able to produce that in scale. And the, you, you hear quotes from Elon Musk about manufacturing being much harder than design. He's absolutely right. That's why we started that right at the beginning. You know, our the, the running joke here is when the design engineers want to go and make a cup of tea, they have to walk down the stairs and pass the production engineering uh, department to get to the cafeteria. Uh, and so they're constantly in communication all the time about everything. They do. Everything is about engineering a production-ready pro- uh, product, everything. That is interesting, too, because I feel like one of the challenging parts is kind of this idea of engineering versus operations. What has that been like at Hill as your engineers will come up with things uh, what's the process then that your operations can now look at that and see if it's actually feasible for for the helicopter? Uh, when you say operations, are you talking in terms of from a manufacturing perspective or from yeah, a manufacturing? Yeah, manufacturing because I think in many different not just helicopters or aviation, but you sometimes have a, have an engineer that's designing something. Yeah, and in their engineering mind and their math and everything, it works right. But then it has to go to an operation side or a manufacturing side, where then maybe uh, I don't know if that actually works the way that it was intended. So, again, again, this is this is absolutely the strength in the way we are doing this. So any any engineering process, developing a new product, is inherently iterative, right? Uh, you start with a set of requirements. You have your first attempt at drawing something that you think might work. And then you spend 90% of your time throwing stones at it and finding the ways that it doesn't work and iterating and iterating and iterating through the different disciplines that, that it needs to go through to make it work. So if we take, uh, for example, a, I don't know, a, a bell crank, take a flight control bell crank. Um, well, you know how much the flight controls move and you know how much the, the, uh, the servos need to move. So that gives you a basic job. So somebody will draw that up. And then we've got to make sure it's strong enough. So it goes and gets analyzed by the stress guys. The stress guys will come back with a bunch of modifications to make sure it's strong enough and it lasts long enough. Uh, And then it's got to go and we've got to look at how we make it. So it goes down to the production engineering guys. And they'll say, well, I've got to be able to uh, get as many of those out of a piece of material as I can. I've got to be able to hold it on the CNC machine. And all of that uh, is going on constantly. So every part that we design gets a, a design buy-off, a performance buy-off, a strength buy-off, a vibration buy-off, a production engineering buy-off, a certification and approval buy-off to make sure it's got the attributes that make it fundamentally possible to, to certify it. And that process goes round and round and round and round and round until everybody's happy. And so that goes on constantly. And this is why uh, people that make products, companies that make products have to be manufacturers Um, This idea that you can separate off the design and the technology company and then subcontract out all of your your manufacturing, that makes all of those iterations much more difficult to achieve. It it makes program times 
much more extensive. It puts barriers in the organization that means that people are precious about the bit that they did or the bit that was within their budget or their responsibility. And it makes it much more difficult to quickly and effectively arrive and converge to something that works, is cost effective, uh, and is properly optimized for, for manufacture. Uh, and so it's the real strength of the way that we operate um, that all of that is fundamentally done under one roof right here, right in this building. Yeah, no, that, uh, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Jason, I kind of want to backtrack a little bit away from the helicopter and talk about you a little bit, uh, because that's one of the things that I love about this podcast is I get to interact and learn a little bit more about the people that make this industry very interesting. Uh, but before we do that, I just want to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Thank you to our sponsor, Precision Aviation Group. Mission critical operators and fleet managers rely on Precision Aviation Group as a worldwide leading rotor and fixed wing MRO provider. PAG provides tip to tail solutions in four MRO segments, avionics, components, engines, and manufacturing DER services. A single point of contact gives you access to over 150 million in inventory globally, 24 seven. Just call 800-537-2778. Precision Aviation Group. Others sell parts. We sell support. All right. Thank you to our sponsors for making the Helicopter Podcast possible. Uh, again, grateful to have Jason Hill on the show today uh, discussing the Hill Helicopter. Uh, Jason, I, I want to take a step back. Uh, one of the things that caught me when I was watching uh, the unveiling in December was there was kind of a, a, a video that was played before y'all came on stage. And it seemed like the story of that video was like this passion that you have had for this, not just like this last few years, but like literally since you were a, a little kid, I can resonate with that because helicopters and aviation have always been this passion essentially since I can remember. Um, has this really been a, a lifelong thought? Uh, I, I think one of your friends on the video even said that, you know, he would go into your room when you were a kid, maybe it was your brother and, you know, see these drawings and things like that of helicopters and aviation. Has this been a love affair that started at a, at a young age? It's uh, to, to say, to say again, what I said in that, that video, I can't remember a time when I, I, when I didn't want to do this, you know, all, all I've, all I've ever uh, wanted to do in my professional life is build this helicopter, is build this this company. Um, and it's kind of hard to explain why you end up feeling like that. It's it's almost like a, a, it's a it, it's an idea I could never get out of my head. It, it was it's like a calling. It's just I knew I could do this from a, a very young age and I'm a natural engineer, you know, that that's where my skills lie. That that's how I built my first business. Um, and, and all I've ever wanted to do is to build this helicopter. I mean, I grew up in the, in the 1980s when Knight Rider was on the TV and Airwolf was on the TV. Tech was cool and things were, stir were, were, first becoming digital and products were, were becoming more capable and more intelligent than ever before. And I was fascinated by all of that. Um, and then the idea of the, the helicopter has always just totally captivated me. You know, this, this ability to just pick yourself up from anywhere and fly yourself off on this magic carpet ride is, is just, I've been, 
totally, totally enchanted by that my, my entire life. So everything that I've done in my life has been about putting myself in a position to be able to deliver this helicopter. So going through the education process that you need to go to to get the, the core knowledge, um, getting trained by a, a big helicopter company, Leonardo, in, in my case, Westlands, as it was called back then, uh, doing a, a PhD in helicopter aerodynamics, building an engineering business and consulting to all areas of industry. So you've got that broad knowledge of how all sorts of industries make stuff and how real engineering businesses work, uh, and then ultimately bringing that together. And, and of course, I've been operational as a, as a private pilot now for 25 years. You know, I've been flying helicopters for 25 years. I've been in and around the people that own private helicopters for 25 years, heard the moaning for 25 years about what they want and what people should and shouldn't do. And I've just been kind of immersed and driving towards that for forever. So this stuff doesn't happen overnight. It takes a very, very long time. It's a really difficult job. And, and all people are seeing at the moment is the tip of that iceberg in terms of the, the effort and the work that's gone into getting us to this point. What uh, it's fascinating to hear. I mean, everything that you've done to uh, get to this point, I still think it's a crazy idea to start a helicopter manufacturing company in all due respect. I mean, it's wild. Um, uh, it's just, it's so unfathomable to me. But it's really neat that this has been something that you've thought about for a long time and then you've kind of put the puzzle pieces in. So let, 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 there... me, let me just speak to that first because there's a, there's, a, there's a really easy way to understand how I think about it, which is if, if you've got this, if you always knew you could do a thing, right, and you never did anything about it, when you turn mid-50s or late-50s, you're just going to become that bitter, miserable old man stood at the end of the bar telling everybody, oh, I could have done that, I could have done this, and you never did anything. And, and I got to my, my mid-30s, uh, mid and, and I just thought to myself, if I don't go all in now, I'm going to run out of time. You know, And, and I, I was more frightened of becoming that bitter old man that never tried than confronting the realities of what if it didn't work. Well, if everybody said, what if it didn't work? Humanity wouldn't move on, would it? We'd never do anything new. Um, and so for me, it, 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 in the end, it wasn't a choice. It was something that I couldn't bear the idea of not doing it. So I, I, I just, uh, like with a number of things in my, my life, I, I just, it was time to go all in. And so we went all in. Um, and, and I get that. I, Jason, I get it. I mean, I, and I love that, actually. I think that... Uh... I think a lot of entrepreneurs have felt that I'm, I consider myself an entrepreneur and literally was just telling my team yesterday, this, this aha moment that I had when I was flying air medical, uh, air medical for me, Jason was like what I always wanted to do in helicopters ever since I was a little kid. And within about three weeks of working air medical, uh, and specifically looking at my opposite pilot, the guy that would take over from me, who was in the business for about 25 years a little bit overweight, a little bit grouchy, uh, not super happy. I had this fear of like, oh my God, like I'm here at my dream. <laughs> and I've been here for three weeks and I can tell already that I, this is not going to be my life. Like it, yeah. it can't be my life. And I had an opportunity to start a business kind of before that. It didn't, it failed uh, like many businesses. 
And, but I had this idea of like, man, I really want to start this sales business, but I was so afraid to take that leap. Um, and for me, it was this fear of not wanting to end up like, uh, like, like every other, not every other, but a lot of the air medical guys that have been doing it for a long time. It's a rough, hard life. You're yeah. flying at weird hours. So that kind of fear spurred me to make a big decision, quit my flying job and go head on into my helicopter sales business. Is that kind of similar to you? Is like, it was almost like this fear of not doing this yeah, thing exactly that eventually thing. led you to actually doing it. Yeah, I, I, yeah. You see, as a as a young man, you come. Yeah, I was constantly looking for uh, how do you create the perfect set of circumstances to make this possible. You know, how do I build my business up big enough that we can we can afford to invest in developing this helicopter? How do I get all of the skills and all the technologies lined up so when I go, I can do it really quickly? And the rea reality is, it never gets to look like that, right? It gets just about good enough. And then that's the time to take the leap and go. Uh, and the rest of the problems you just have to solve along the way. And that's life. You know, that, that's how it, that's how it goes. So yeah, for, for me, it was the, it was the cognizance that if I, if I procrastinated it any longer looking for a perfect set of circumstances, it would never happen. And then I'd become that bitter old man at the end of the bar. Uh, and so I, I knew that, that I knew then that that was the time. And, you know, we'd been, in the early days, uh, because obviously doing this is a spectacularly expensive thing to do, um, we'd been looking for all sorts of ways to leverage the money that we made within the engineering company to to get to a point where we thought we could do it. And one of the real turning points for, for us uh, was we, we got the engineering company to a point where I had got a big enough standing, we got a big enough financial standing that we were able to attract just a little bit of government money that allowed me to turn more of my core team into developing the helicopter. And then, of course, the, the progress ramped up. And the rest, as they say, is, is history. We'd got to a point then where we developed it sufficiently. The people that had been uh, inadequately served by uh, existing vendors uh, and had been so frustrated the enough of them were prepared to support us that it propelled us to where we are to where we are today. So you've talked about it a couple of times now uh, about this frustration and, and you've definitely, I guess I, I, I wasn't familiar that you've been flying helicopters yourself for, for as long as you have. So you, you're a testament to that frustration. So you've lived it yourself, but uh, what, what do you think, this lack of innovation in this helicopter industry is from, I mean, you, you, you're perceiving that, Hey, there hasn't been a bunch of movement for, for many, many years. What, why do you think that is? I mean, do you think it's uh, the OEMs not wanting to press that button forward? Is it because of the red tape involved? With I, innovation? I, I, no, no, I, I think, uh, I think a, a series of, a series of factors uh, have, have led to it. Um, fu fundamentally, um, the, it, it, it Fundamentally, it's quite challenging to, to develop new helicopters. And over the, over the years, the, in the early days, there were only a very small number of people that manufactured helicopters. Those, those companies were essentially marketing ex-military derivatives. Those machines were never designed to be cost-effective, easy-to-produce uh, commercial machines. They were derivatives of things that were developed for the, for the army and so on. So the start point was quite an expensive, uh, expensive base. Um, 
And then because they're too, because they're expensive to operate, because they're really too expensive for what the market can tolerate to ever grow into large scale, you never get a big enough number of, of helicopter sales and a big enough number of machines out there, a big enough industry to warrant lots of R&D spend to go and do it again. And so the industry's kind of found itself in this, this vicious circle where um, the machines are too expensive so the industry doesn't grow. The people that have got the capability don't see the civil market as particularly juicy because it's easier to sell big, expensive military programs. And then the only outliers you're left with uh, are, are the, the company, are the, the people like like Robinson uh, that have that made a, a spectacular um, job of of developing a much more cost effective helicopter, a much more uh, operator friendly helicopter in terms of its cost to operate known. And they had the, the market to themselves for, for 40 years, essentially. So then you've got the problem that there's no real competition. And if you haven't got people biting at your heels uh, and it's a relatively small market, there, there isn't really the business driver to go and really seek the the huge difficulty that is in innovating and developing new products and then pushing those through an approvals process. And of course, what you've got to remember is we're not talking about small amounts of time here, are we? We're talking about 40 years. And in that 40 years, the the bar to entry has just got higher and higher and higher because the certification rate requirements have got tighter and tighter and tighter. Um, and the the general level of technology in in the world has increased and increased and increased. So now there's just a lot more to develop to, to bring a product up to the standards that today's consumers expect than there was back in the 60s and 70s. You know, we've got all these fancy avionics to do. We've got fancy control systems to do. Uh, we've got much more people expect much more elegant designs. So the tooling requires much more. Everything is bigger and more complicated than it used to be. And then on top of that, the bar's much higher for what you're expected to do to demonstrate that it's certifiably safe. So it's just become a really difficult thing when looking in from the outside, it looks like it's a tiny little market. And why would you want to carve that up even more and share it between a bunch of companies? So when you look at it like that, it just doesn't make any sense. What we've done that's different is when you look at it with a totally fresh pair of eyes and you look at how many people could actually afford to buy a helicopter if you delivered one at the right purchase price with the right operating costs that really turned them on, you know, that really delivered what they wanted. It gave them a reason to buy helicopters. It gave them a reason to get back into general aviation. And when you look at it like that, the market's totally different. So when you look at it like that, there is a big enough market there to put a, a serious production product into, into place. And it is worth uh, doing the, the level of R&D that you need to go and reignite general aviation and create those uh, those new helicopter owners that would have loved to have one, but could either not justify the the depreciation that exists in existing machines, or they just weren't good enough for them. They just didn't meet their expectations. Yeah, you know it's it's interesting, and, and I agree with a lot of the points that you're saying there. Uh, and and the market that you're talking about is interesting. I almost kind of feel like right now too, you guys have proven the market. Uh, I don't know the exact number. Maybe you're able to tell me, but it, I know that there's a significant amount of orders for your aircraft. 
Has that been a surprise to you? What do you think has been so uh, – what has been like the silver bullet for you guys in being able to convince uh, these buyers to place this deposit down and go on this journey with you? Um, again, I would say the, the silver bullet is abject frustration. Uh, I, I, th- I think so. Let me answer those questions in order. Firstly, orders. So, as I sit here today, we're at one thousand two hundred and forty uh, sales orders received. Um, in terms of what's been the silver bullet, the, you, you've got to imagine that people are, uh, people are trying to sell a product from the nineteen seventies and eighties today in twenty twenty four. Now, there's a massive gap between expectations in 24 and back in the the 70s and 80s. So if you turn up with a product of today, it's going to light everybody up. You know, ah, this is what I've been waiting for. If you then put into the equation uh, the fact that people have been paying a lot of money for for helicopters that they know don't cost that much to to make, they're they're having to live with huge depreciation rates. So not only do they have to pay for the, the helicopters, over the, the period of owner, ownership, whether it's because you've got a big calendar inspection coming up or because your machine needs a massive tail, nose-to-tail overhaul, for a private owner, that completely murders the economics uh, because you've got this huge depreciation mechanism built in to flying 50 hours a year. So if you do what we've done and you've gone for a sort of 5,000-hour on condition life, nose to tail, then that means a private owner is never going to fly the hours off. That's 100 years of flying, right? So that's irrelevant. Um, and if you're on ca- calendar, you don't ever have these horrible sawtooth profiles uh, that you get in some of the existing machines where you've ju- you're just ticking the clock down to a massive bill. So that, that recipe for a private owner machine is really important. Delivering a machine that meets today's expectations is vital. So proper performance, proper levels of refinement, uh, automotive levels of uh, surface quality on the exterior. So a machine that looks good, a machine that's properly appointed on the inside, uh, a machine that's got the right level of technology. So an autopilot. Why in today's world would you not have an autopilot? They're not expensive. They're not difficult to develop but they completely transform the flying experience if you're doing any kind of cross-country flying and they completely transform safety uh, for low-time VFR pilots. Uh, put enough power in the machine to, main, to, to make sure it's easy to fly. Most of these guys are going to be flying confined area to confined area, garden to garden. And so to be able to get in and out of that without having undue skill makes a big difference. Um, and then similarly, the digital cockpit make flying easy. The advent of sort of iPad app based navigation may, has made a huge difference to the uh, the utility of, of aircraft to, to ply private owners because it's easy just to go anywhere to anywhere and navigation is no longer a, a challenge. Um, and so integrating that properly with the whole flying experience. So it's easy because you've got the performance and safety measures you need around you. It's easy because navigation and workloads been managed. It's really sexy uh, because it looks and feels great. Uh, and it's cost effective because you've uh, got this end to end control of costs and you've pitched the price of the helicopter and the operating point at what the volume target market can afford, not what the bill of materials came to when you let every man and his dog sell you a bunch of expensive bits, um, but what it needs to be to make the whole proposition work for people. And and, uh, the final thing is um, 
although it didn't look like it from the outside, we we got the perfect set of circumstances in the market because you you've got a helicopter market. The helicopter market is a perfect filter for the great and good of global society, isn't it? The people that fly helicopters for fun are successful people. They're almost always business people. They've got a high risk reward threshold. So those are exactly the kind of people that if you give them something that really resonates with them, will go for it because they feel they've been so badly treated by what's available for them to today. And that's generally in terms of what the products represent but also, in many cases, the, the levels of service that they're, they're faced with in the support of those products as well. So we've, we've just kind of upped the bar to where it would normally be in 2024 in a bunch of other industries, delivered a product that is up to date and cost effective. It's not really any more complicated than that. Do you think that uh, or do you know, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm not needing an exact percentage, but obviously a lot of your, your uh, buyers are guys and gals that currently own helicopters, they've operated helicopters, they're familiar. But it also would seem that by introducing this new concept and and this idea of a more affordable helicopter that looks really good, has a lot of the features that we are accustomed to in, say, the automobile industry, have you guys brought in a lot of new-time helicopter people? Yeah, definitely. About 20% of people that have bought our machine are totally new to helicopters. But I think the other thing that you have to understand is we haven't even tried to market to that section yet. Because if you think about it, to understand the proposition, to understand what we're offering, you really need to understand the market. So you need to already already be in helicopters. So until this point, we've really been targeting the people that are already there uh, and just offering them what they wanted. Um, the, the, the marketing and the push will switch to bringing people back into general, general aviation, uh, once we're, once we're in production. So at the moment, we're really just, uh, answering the requests of people that have been in helicopters forever. And we've got the outliers, you know, we've got people that have always fancied a helicopter that have got deep pockets and are, uh, are able to cope with what we, what we, uh, what we can offer at this stage in development. Um, but we haven't really pushed to those people yet. It's it's really been uh, a, a dissatisfied helicopter market that's moved to us in volume uh, up until now. Only only twenty percent of the people are new, but that will expand. That will become uh, the dominant source of uh, of our sales, I think, in the future, as it needs to be. You know, we in the year I was born in nineteen seventy eight. In nineteen seventy eight, the U.S. industry alone produced eighteen thousand seven hundred eleven light. Uh, single engine piston aircraft this industry used to be massive right that, that that market never went away we just got progressively worse at giving them what they wanted and we're just trying to correct that and then it will come back and more because there's never been more wealthy professional people around yeah i mean i can see that too i mean and and i think for a lot of people jason is that uh helicopters seem unobtainable uh especially yeah. with people that are not in the helicopter world. Uh, so I think that when they see something like this, it kind of makes it seem obtainable. So I think 20% is actually pretty impressive without actually pushing that side. I, I want to talk about the the variants, the HX and the HC, but real fast, just a quick word from our sponsors. Thank you to our sponsor, Hillsboro Heli Academy. 
Embark on your helicopter pilot journey with Hillsboro Heli Academy. Known worldwide, they make it easy to achieve both U.S. and European helicopter licenses. Visit flyhaa.com to schedule your introductory flight and turn your dream into a career. All right, back to the helicopter podcast. And again, joined by Jason Hill of Hill Helicopters. Uh, so, Jason, it's my understanding uh, two variants currently, the HX and the HC50. So potentially for our listeners out there who uh, who haven't done their research or, they, or they're not, for whatever reason, familiar with Hill quite yet, give us the breakdown of those two variants, uh, what the experimental route looks like and uh, what the subsequent certification uh, route looks like. Okay, so fundamentally, the first thing to understand is that the two machines are totally identical. In the in the early days, there was going to be some uh, subtle differences in avionics, but we've we've moved past that now simply because we've sold so many of them. Uh, we can put the same suite of avionics in in all machines. So essentially, HX is the model that's designed for private owners. So the fundamental thing you have to understand with that one. You can't use it for commercial applications. It's purely a private machine. Uh, and then the, the C model is fully certified uh, and that can be used for uh, commercial operations as, as any part, uh, part 27 aircraft would be. For both of them, the basis for approval is part 27, normal category rotorcraft, as you'd call it in the, uh, in the, the US. So our design basis, everything that the, the design is fully designed to, to meet both UK and the ARSA CS27 amendment 10, and then part 27 of the, uh, the, the FAA code as well. So it's the latest certification standard of the full certified requirements for light helicopters. That's what both of these machines are designed to meet. The reason that we've split this off is because fundamentally, um, we have a much faster path to market if once, uh, if when we've completed our engineering work, our engineering tests, we uh, are as we have as little dependence on the authorities as possible for the wheels of their validation of our testing to turn. So essentially, we carry or we will carry uh, a full design organisation approval a full production organization approval, a full flight test organization approval, and a full type approval to part 27 for X and C. And then for C, you continue the verification process initially in the UK and then around the world uh, to get a full type certificate. So the aircraft are identical. They're built in the same factory by the same people. The main difference is X is private and the owners get to come and spend two weeks in the factory uh, learning about their machine and building their machine. Whereas on the C, it's a roll off the end of the line uh, machine as with any other manufacturer. Uh, and then that's, uh, that's fully type certified and available for commercial use. Uh, and this is kind of a, a, a topic that I'm not super familiar with in regards to this idea of certification. Uh, in my business, I, I get the happy stance opportunity to work with different governing agencies, FAA, IASA, and others. And uh, it's difficult. Um, yeah. You know, even just exporting an aircraft, say, from Germany to the United States, you would think it's as simple as getting an export C of A doing all the right processes, but no, of course the FAA needs a certain sentence on the export C of A. And if you don't get that sentence, then you have to pay the manufacturer 
you know, $20,000 to get that sentence. It's this craziness. It's all this red tape. So I'm, I'm experienced from that level, but yeah. I'm not experienced on this level of like actually certifying an aircraft. And I know that some of the, some of the comments on Hill is this idea of certification that the, the big manufacturers, the Bells, the Airbus, the uh, Leonardo, you know, they're all trying to currently certify aircraft and it's taken years and years and years and years. Uh, and, and sometimes even results in failure. What are you guys doing? What is your path for the HC? Uh, and, and how confident are you in certification? Uh, and what does that timeline look like for you guys? So I think that what you have to understand about certification is if you're a, a suitably qualified and experienced person, then certification is really an exam where you've got all the questions before you start. You've got a document that tells you all the answers before you start. And all you've got to do is show that you've written one of those answers on the exam paper. Okay. So there are advisory circulars that tell you what they've accepted before. There are requirements that tell you what you've got to do. And all you've got to do is do it and document it in a way that's acceptable to the authority. So one of the, one of the keys is that you get that stuff right. So I'm totally confident that we will will get the, the aircraft approved because we know what we've got to do to get it approved. Um, one of the benefits that we've got being in the, the UK at the moment, of course, is that we've only recently left Europe. And so we've recently gained the ability to certify uh, aircraft at home independently of the enormous EASA machine. And so we've got a very flexible uh, and nimble uh, domestic regulator here for whom we are a very significant player in the, the country. So we've had amazing support from the, the UK CAA. Um, the actual pathway for HX50 was co-authored by me and the head of the GA unit at the CAA back in 2015 and 2016. And we've been working with them ever since. So what we're doing at the moment is getting the aircraft developed to a point where we know we meet all of the, the requirements. We've got all of the evidence to show that we meet all of the requirements. And then we can give the regulators a really clear timeline of what input we need from them to enable them to uh, validate all of the uh, the documents, the tests and everything else that they have to get involved with. So it's it's about having a really effective, transparent uh, and mutually respectful relationship with each of the regulators. But the key advantage we've got here at the moment is we've got a very small and nimble regulator at home. And we are uh, quite honestly, one of the most significant projects in the in the country at the moment. You know, there, I don't think there is another aircraft manufacturer in the UK that has the number of orders that we do um, or anywhere, in fact. Stupid question. Um, but if you get the certification in the UK where it sounds like it's maybe, I don't want to use the word easier, but there's a very clear path um, and, uh, and it, it makes sense to obviously start there in the UK. By having that certification in the UK, does that help create yeah. an easier path for certification yeah. into IASA and FAA? Yeah. Absolutely. So there, there are technical implementation procedures, there's working arrangements between all of the authorities uh, around the world. And there's two different approaches taken in different territories around the world. Uh, some, uh, some authorities will essentially just sign off or rubber stamp on the certification that's done in the UK. Uh, so they'll, they'll do a type acceptance. It's a very simple uh, and relatively quick process. 
uh, other territories will require a parallel certification. So what we do there is once the, the, the sort of certification framework, the certification plan and all of the certification documents are, are established in the, the home authority, they immediately then go into the big authorities like EASA uh, and like the FAA, Transport Canada um, and CASA and uh, the New Zealand CA, places like that. So this all happens in parallel, but there's no point in doing that until you've got your basis right in the first place. And please don't misunderstand me or misquote me. It is not easy to get certification in the UK. The, the point I'm making is very nuanced. Uh, there are an authority that has just got their, um, their powers back to certify aircraft at home, and we're a significant player in the UK. So we'll get the requisite amount of attention and support and political support to be able to get this job done in a rational timescale. Um, the problems that you've got in, in other territories that are doing initial type certifications with new manufacturers is obviously you're fighting for resources everywhere. But if we've got the basic type certification nailed first to internationally regular, uh, recognized standards, that puts us in as good a position as we could be anywhere to roll that out around the world as quickly as can be. So we're doing this interview today is January 24th. Um, so late January, uh, where are we, where are you currently at with both the, I guess the HX and the HC, where, where are you at in the testing? Uh, what, what is kind of the current, what you're working on and what is like the next six to 12 months look like, uh, for Hill helicopters? Okay. So at the, at the moment, we are currently building the GT50 in uh, engine in stages. So we're going through combustion testing at the moment onto gas generator testing and then onto the full engine testing. And that's going to carry, that's going to be carried out over the, the first half of this year to, to get the engine into a position where we're basically satisfied with the design. The latter half of the year, we'll be doing uh, more extensive endurance testing and, and proving and approving work uh, there. In terms of the aircraft itself, um, we're currently going through a, a retooling exercise where we're mopping up a, a bunch of improvements that we picked up from all the work we did running up to the event in December uh, and all of the process development work we've done to retool and produce the, the tools and produce the flying prototypes. And then those flying prototypes will go together from the, the summer in Q3 uh, ready to be flying towards the, the end of the year this year. Uh, so in, ter in terms of the development program, obviously in parallel with that, all the mechanical units around the middle of the year will be starting their endurance tests uh, to clear them for ground running and then flight later in the year. Uh, as well. So this is this is very much a year of mopping up a lot of the enhancements and the improvements that were conducted last year and getting those things into production and then getting test articles onto the bench uh, ready to be, be flying towards the end of this year. So essentially 2024 could be a big year for Hill. 2024 uh, is a massive year for us. And, and having a flying prototype, I mean, I mean, that's, that's what we're all excited for, right? Uh, Absolutely is to see the end result of all the efforts that you and your team have put in to get to that point. Uh, as I started up the podcast, uh, and, and honestly, Jason, you know, talking to you, you've, obviously you, you know your stuff. You're a very smart guy. Um, this has been a, a passion project, uh, something, uh, and that's what, you know, I, I like people that, 
are able to literally live out their passion. You can tell when someone is like, uh, this is not just a business. Uh, to me, at least when I talk to you, it seems like this is really a passion uh, that you're just fulfilling now with this business and creating this helicopter. Uh, but with the innovation, with with maybe some of the disruption, uh, it, it's the Hill helicopter has been polarizing. Uh, if you talk to 10 people, five people will maybe <clears throat> say it's great and five people will say it's not so great. We actually had a panel discussion on the Hill some months ago and it was like very neutral uh, and actually pretty positive for the Hill. Uh, but even that, that sparked some controversy of people emailing me and saying, well, you didn't say that right. You didn't do that. I mean, it's very, you have people that are all in Hill and some people that are kind of against. What What do you say to those out there that think that this isn't real? <laughs> so firstly, I understand that point of view. So that it doesn't offend me that people think like that because you've got to understand the landscape that we live in. Um, you know, virtually nothing has happened in light civil helicopters for 40 years. Okay. So there, there are guys that started their career on a particular jet ranger and they won't just still be flying jet rangers. They'll still be flying the same jet ranger 40 years later when they're, they're ready to retire. Um, and so you, we've got this industry where people are just conditioned to think that certification is this impenetrable barrier to entry. Uh, the guys that are doing it at the moment uh, that's the best you can have. That's the best you can do. And so there, there's that prevalent belief in the industry that until it's actually done, you're not going to break down people that are, that are of that mindset. But what we found during the course of the program is uh, you, you've got, a, you've got a, a whole spectrum of people in the industry and in the world. Um, there are, there are people out there that um, are able to accept a, a much higher amount of uncertainty or risk uh, to back something that they believe in. And they might believe in it just because they want to see it done, just because they know that needs to be done. Others uh, are, are prepared to accept the risk because the rewards are right for them. You know, they, they get a great discount if they're in early uh, or they're first in the queue because they're in early. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got people that, won't buy until it's flown, won't buy until it's certified, won't buy until it's in production, won't buy until we've made a thousand of them, won't buy until it's been in service for 10 years. Everybody's got their own position on that. It's in your DNA. You're never going to change that. You are where you are on that, that mm -hmm. spectrum. And that's fine. So so I, I, I get that and I get that what we're doing is so big and so bold and so different to what people are, are used to that uh, you'll either get it or you won't. And, and that's fine. You know, for what we, what we said, we've, as you can imagine, we've had lots of to and fro from all sorts of people over the, the years that, that really want it, but aren't comfortable yet or really want it. And then come back to us six months later, say, Oh, you've done this now. We're happy. We're in, uh, or you've got this many now. I, I know you can't fail. We're in, or there's lots of different triggers to make, make people comfortable enough to, 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 to join in. Um, but but fundamentally, we're just trying to make the best helicopter in the world. And the, the people that supported us earliest will do the best out of it. Uh, they, they, they have the best price and they get the machines earliest. And people that, that need more reassurance or need to more, see more, uh, uh, more things delivered and finished or whatever their criteria is, they're equally welcome when we get there. So you, it, it, the where you sit on that risk-reward spectrum is just 
in your bones. You're not going to change it, and and that's fine. And in an industry where nothing's changed for 40 years, you have to expect people will feel that way. I mean, what we've been talking today, I've explained how we've managed to do it. That there's nothing new here. We've just done a really good job of packaging something that that's been done before, and then we've done a really good job of the the business. Cut out all the wasteful middlemen done it ourselves and use modern technology to allow us to scale easily. And those are really simple business ideas, right? So the, the technology is proven and the business ideas are simple. And the rest of it is just an exercise in delivery. And people will come to us when they're when they're ready and that that's fine. Yeah, and, and it's a good it's a good point. Everyone has their own threshold of what they're comfortable with. Yeah. Um, and it's, and, and I understand that, uh, you know, early adapters are, are rewarded in this, in this case, uh, and they are supporting, uh, a new concept right there. Uh, I like that you said that, like they're, they want to see it happen. So they want to get behind it and they want to support the people. I, that I, I'll, give you a, I'll give you an idea, just a couple of quotes of things that people have said to me over the years. Um, some people have say, have said to me, you know, I'd, I'd pay a hundred grand just for a ticket to watch this show. You know, and those are people at a very particular end of the spectrum, you know, that have got lots of money. But we've also had people that have had to borrow the deposit, borrow the deposit. And they bought because it, they felt it was the only chance they'd ever have to own a turbine helicopter at this price point. And so and, and clearly that's a very different risk reward uh, characteristic. It's not about how much money you've got. It's just about your perception and your ability to manage risk against what you're prepared to, to tolerate. I, I tell you some another important point along these lines as well that's worth noting is I think everybody kind of accepts that, um, not well, perhaps not ex everybody, but most people accept we'll make the helicopter, we'll make it work. Uh, the big bugbear for most people is this idea that we're doing our own jet engine. But people often say, yeah, they'll, they'll re-quote at me, nobody ever should do an aircraft and an engine at the same time. But if they knew where that quote came from, that quote quote came from back in the 1950s when to do an engine, you've got to develop all of the technologies that were necessary to make a jet engine work. You've got to learn to cast super alloys for the first time. Um, you've got to learn how to make axial compressors or centrifugal compressors work or how to do the heat shielding or how to cool a combustion liner, how to inject fuel or get your turn down right on your nozzles, how to do your, your speed. Governing. All of that was being done for the first time. And that was a massive engineering undertaking with no prior art or no experience of how to do it before. That's totally different to what we're doing. What we're doing is taking a bunch of ideas that have been proven in the field for 70 years, right? And a bunch of manufacturing processes and equipment that's been proven in the field from anywhere from 60 to 10 years and bringing those things together. So this is, again, we're collecting these ideas and bringing them together. It's an integration job rather than an innovation job. So it's not the same. And by doing the aircraft and the engine together, we get to get to a totally unparalleled price point and we get to give the aircraft the engine it really needs rather than buying the closest one you can off the shelf and then compromising on the performance levels you're able to produce. So it's a very rational way uh, to deliver what we need to deliver for our customers, but it just becomes a big job. Yeah. The, and the engine is interesting, what you guys are doing. And I guess I'm wondering, keeping in mind that I'm 
I'm a, I'm an okay pilot. I've uh, been flying helicopters for a long time, but I'm no expert in in jet engines, jet propulsion. I understand the very basics of a turbine engine. Uh, I'm as a pilot, I'm actually really more concerned about you know the red lines on the gauges to make sure that I'm not hurting the engine. So yeah. if you're talking to me, which I guess you are, is how do you explain what you guys are doing with your power plant? I know that again, you said that there's already very much existing innovations within your engine. Uh, but still, it's a different engine than what we've seen before, correct? It is, but it's a configuration or it's a it's a it's an assembly of uh, ideas that have been done extensively before. If you look at the layout of the, the engine, you'll recognize it. You know, you'll have seen that implemented in multiple aircraft and multiple engine uh, designs over decades. So all of the key elements of the, the engine are time served. All of the basic principles of how it works and why things are done the way they're done are time served. So we're, we're, we're starting from a, uh, we're starting from a point of knowing that engines that look like that work. Uh, and then you go through component by component and design each of those components to do exactly what they're supposed to do. So it's very much the same greatest hits approach as we've taken with the, the aircraft. The real, the real innovation and the real work, in all honesty, um, in making that engine cost-effective and making it reliable has been about developing the wide range of manufacturing processes that you need to. So machining titanium impellers from solid, casting super alloy turbine blades in-house, uh, doing sheet metal fabrication in nickel-based super alloys, um, doing the, the control systems for the dual-channel FADEC to very, very, very high software and hardware integrity levels and bringing all of that together to deliver what will, in the end, be a very simple, simple engine uh, with very high pedigree. So, it, again, it's the, it's the same approach, but applied to a gas turbine engine. And in terms of how will it feel from a pilot or even a novice pilot, um, well, what goes on inside the engine is completely invisible to you. You press the start button, it starts. The digi cockpit will uh, simplify managing the engine. You've got a essentially a, a first limit indicator, so up to ten for as long as you like, uh, up to eleven for five minutes every hour, and all the way around to twelve and a half or one hundred twenty-five percent for thirty seconds each uh, each flight hour. That's it. So it's it's a very very simple turbine engine to to operate. The fact that we've got a high inertia main rotor system means that the rotor behavior is very docile. Um, the the FADEC uh, gives you very tight rotor RPM governing, and the fact that we've got such big power margins means that things like dumping a load of less, left pedaling and pulling the RPM down are much more difficult to do uh, in this because you've got enough grunt. To, to be able to do it. The other thing I would say is because we've set our stall out to, to deliver the, a level of performance to all of our customers around the world, the engine is designed uh, to deliver 500 horsepower at 10,000 feet on an ISA plus 15 day uh, so that essentially anything below that, you've got such huge power and temperature and speed reserves uh, that you shouldn't go anywhere near a, near a limit anyway. So by being able to, to design an engine that suits the aircraft, we make it much easier for a pilot to operate than, uh, than it would be if you're trying to squeeze an engine that's ever so slightly too small or doesn't quite have the hot and high performance that you need into, a, into an aircraft. When I think of private owners, which obviously 
this helicopter is going after private owners, of course, as part of the market, yeah. especially with the HX. <clears throat> One thing uh, being in helicopter sales, I know is tricky is the fact that the aircraft has a turbine engine in regards to insurance. Yeah. Um, we've had a heck of a time uh, trying to get uh, private owners that have maybe had a 44 or a 280 on the instrument side or whatever it may be. And they're wanting to now jump into their first turbine. It's been a big hurdle for us to be able to get them into the turbine helicopter. Uh, are you guys working with insurance companies or is there an insurance option that you guys are going to be providing? We will be providing uh, insurance for all of our customers all the way around the world. And obviously we'll be working with insurance companies behind the scenes to, to get that rolled out around the world. But fundamentally the principle is this, the reason that it's expensive for you to get turbine insurance for private owners is because when they have a mishap, the costs are enormous because existing turbine engines and existing helicopters are enormously expensive. Um, if essentially I'm insuring myself uh, for the fleet, then I'm not paying, not the market rate, I'm paying what it actually costs me to replace those components. So I essentially artificially lower the hull and the engine price down to a much lower level that makes it much cheaper for me to insure those things on our, our customers' behalf, essentially. So by lowering the effective hull value, you get the insurance premium down without, without any fancy relationships. You have a large fleet-wise policy, and it makes it much easier for us to drive the costs down further. So not only will it be easy to get insurance for a, for a hill helicopter, but we'll be able to drive those prices down to completely unprecedented levels because we're starting with a platform that's less than half the price of the nearest competitor. Uh, and then we're only insuring part of that whole value because I only have to insure what it would cost me to replace it rather than the end user. So we're really trying to give end-to-end -end care for both our private owners and our commercial operators. And as we go to, to Heli Expo uh, later in, in February, we'll be just pushing our, our GV toll strategy uh, a little bit further, which is very much about forming a proper partnership with operators and private owners. So the, the whole end-to-end -end ownership cost of having a helicopter is properly managed. So we control the cost of the machine itself. We control the cost of the insurance and drive that down. And we control the cost of the, the parts and maintenance and drive that down. So people for the first time have got truly predictable ownership costs uh, for, for aircraft. And our belief is that that will really reignite the light helicopter commercial industry because we're giving people a predictable platform on which to build a business. What are you guys estimating that hourly cost right now? So uh, in, a, in UK pounds, we're, we're around for a, for a 50, uh, a 50 hour uh, a year pilot around the 250 pounds an hour mark. Um, and then obviously that drops as you fly more hours because you wash off the, uh, the indirect costs of insurance and annual maintenance. Jason, I'm stealing a lot of your time. So again, I appreciate this. It's fascinating. It's uh, I don't get I don't get many opportunities to uh, actually. I don't, I've never talked to anyone that started a helicopter company. So I appreciate that. What What does the long term support network look like? Are you guys starting to put that infrastructure in place? Service centers, training. Like if I buy a hill helicopter, and I'm in Portland, Oregon, what does the long term service plan look like for someone like myself? 
So that that infrastructure has to scale as the business scales. The, there's no point in putting a load of infrastructure out there until uh, there's a there's a market for it to serve. So the way we're rolling that out is if you were to buy a Hill helicopter today, uh, when you come to the, the let's say it's a, well either an X or a C model, when you come to the, the factory, uh, we will train your mechanic or a mechanic of your choice to be able to maintain your helicopter in your location. So whoever looks after your existing machine could come to our factory and be rated on the, the, the HX or the, the HC50. And then as we move closer to production and beyond, we'll be establishing a network of service centers and support centers around the world so that you've got proper local people suitably qualified and properly supported by us uh, to be able to deliver care for that machine throughout its life. The final uh, kind of thought that I have uh, before we wrap it up is from the pilot perspective. Uh, again, I flew helicopters professionally. I feel pretty competent in my abilities. I feel like if I were to buy uh, a Hill helicopter, uh, get the initial training, bring it back home to Oregon here, I feel like I have the, the right platform to be safe in operating yeah. that aircraft just based on my pilot experience. Uh, but also knowing a lot of private owners, because that's a lot of the, the clientele that I work with. I know that some of them, uh, in my opinion, may not have that platform yeah. that, like an experienced pilot has. What can, what can, what can the industry expect uh, for you guys' commitment of training for these private owners? Because at the end of the day, a helicopter is still a helicopter. Um, and it very much, uh, the outcome is very much, in my opinion, that guy in the seat, you can put all the technologies in the world. Sometimes in fact, those technologies, uh, can have a reverse effect. It kind of gives this false sense of, of preservation. Uh, what, what kind of commitment are you guys going to make towards making sure that these private owners specifically are not doing things in these helicopters, or at least that they have the proper education, uh, to make good, safe decisions? That, that's a that's a brilliant question, uh, and that's absolutely fundamental to the whole ethos here at, at Hill. So we're going to be going further than uh, any manufacturer has to date to look after those clients, because fundamentally, all of our early machines are going into the hands of private owners that that won't have a chief pilot looking after uh, looking after them. They'll go and do their LPC or their biennial. Uh, once a year or once every two years, and, and that's it. Um, so what we've developed is what we call the, the Hill Active Safety Management Program. Uh, and this is essentially a range of measures that ensures that those pilots are properly supported throughout their ownership experience. So every machine is sold with a full type rating. Uh, so that's a five-hour training course to, assuming you're already a pilot, that is, a five-hour training course to get you rated on the machines and its differences to the aircraft that you've flown in the past. Um, that that safety course covers a lot of the things that other say. Sorry, that's the the type rating. We also provide a safety course that covers a lot of the aspects uh, operationally beyond just using the aircraft uh, that go into being a, a safe pilot. So those are the two primary things that we're doing for existing pilots now. Beyond that, um, each aircraft is sold with both a, uh, a flight data recorder 
system that live streams aircraft data back to our cloud-based facilities. So we track the health and the usage of each of those machines as they go through uh, service life. Um, if we uh, if we if we uh, see either a, a trend developing in the aircraft that shows a, a mechanical issue or a problem developing with the, the aircraft, we can intervene. Uh, also, if we see a pattern of operational behavior that experience has shown is putting the pilot and the pilot's passengers at risk, we can also intervene there and offer corrective training, safety pilot services, or whatever we need to help those pilots operate the aircraft as safely as possible. Now, the way that we can do this is through the, the Hill app. So we've, we've developed a, a Hill app that up until uh, now has been mainly a, a, a mechanism to communicate with our, our clients and our community. But the app will also be extended to manage the aircraft, manage the maintenance of the aircraft and help support the pilot through a platform that provides access to safety pilots, instructors, the insurance services, training materials, um, and just looks after every aspect of being a private owner operator. And what gives us the ability to make this work is the fact that we have the data coming back from each of the aircraft to tell us when a problem's developing. And we have the leverage to make people respond to us because if they want cost-effective insurance, they'll be coming through us. So the idea here isn't that this is like a, a black box on the dashboard of an 18 year old's car. It's the fact that this isn't a joke. Uh, and and if, you're, if you're new to aviation or if you're a private pilot without all of the normal protection that the commercial commercial guys get through their the safety management processes within a, a commercial operation then we have to put that infrastructure in place otherwise these people's skills are going to stagnate they'll develop bad habits that are never picked up all of the character traits that made them successful enough in business to be able to buy a helicopter are the worst traits you could have as a helicopter pilot because you will you'll just have this uh, often have this uh, belief in your own ability that is beyond the level of your own ability. And, and a, a, a platform that tracks performance, behavior, and real-world use cases enables us to, to provide a level of support to people that hasn't been done before for private pilots. So that, that's the, the essence of what we're rolling out as part of every HX and every HC50. And again, uh, UK CAA uh, have been involved in that from the start and absolutely uh, love it as a concept. I mean, I think it's almost, it's like a business in itself, really. You know, I'm surprised that we're not doing something like that <laughs> where there's like a, a centralized tracking. I mean, it just, it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, and it's actually pretty cool uh, hearing that. I think that the, one of the reasons why you don't do it is because a lot of the older aircraft don't have any kind of digital instrument instrumentation. Sure. So you don't have the start point to be able to use the data. So part of the reason why you go to the trouble of doing a digital cockpit is so that you've got all of that data that you can then do something with. Um, but that's a massive tear up of an older aircraft or a massive redesign of a, an older aircraft design that's still in production to put that stuff in. And that stuff that takes 
weight and it takes power and it takes cost if you don't do it from the ground up. So we're in a fairly unique position in that because this is a clean sheet of paper, because we're not bound by OEMs that want to do their own thing, um, we can do exactly what we need to to provide a, an ownership experience and end-to-end -end care of our customers to take general aviation back up to where it needs to be in 2024 and beyond. I support that. I think that's, um, I, I like that actually. Um, general aviation, I think has been kind of the uh, neglected stepchild for many years, specifically within helicopters, but also fixed wing aircraft. Um, and, and I think a lot of it is, uh, you know, I've always advocated for that with my with my private owners. It's like, you know, let me help you treat your ownership like a helicopter operator would treat yeah. the ownership. And I think that's lacking. So I think it's really neat that you guys are doing that. Um, final question. If someone wants to secure serial number 1241, what are they? Yeah, 1240 or no. What where were you at? 1240, right? So, yeah. If someone yeah. wants to secure that next, that next line, uh, that next serial number, what is the process of, of securing a Hill helicopter currently? So the process is very simple. We only do direct sales. So if you go to the, the Hill Helicopters website, book a presentation, uh, you'll get to talk to Ruben and Misha, our two exclusive sales uh, ambassadors. They'll take you through the whole process of where we are in development, what the timeline looks like, when the next available production slots are. Uh, and then if you're happy at that point, you'll be sent a, a purchase agreement. Uh, you can sign that via DocuSign and then uh, send us a, a £30,000 deposit for an X or a £50,000 deposit for a C. Uh, once that's received, you get your order acknowledgement and your serial number, and then you get the next allocated serial number. And then once we've completed the, the development, you'll get a firm uh, date of production uh, when we're within 12 months of the of your production slot. It's as simple as that. Very simple. Jason, thank you so much for uh, all the time that you've given us today answering uh, the questions. Um I think I need to come and visit. Uh, it'd be pretty fun to come and see Hill, check it out in person. Um, and uh, looking forward to seeing you at Heli Expo. Uh, are you guys exhibiting at Expo? Or are you? We are, or... Yeah, we're, this will be our first Heli Expo. We're bringing both of the, the machines with us. So you'll get to see a, a HX50 on wheels, uh, a HX50 on skids. You'll get to interact with the digital cockpit. Uh, see the uh, the interior, the exterior, uh, speak to a lot of the key members of the, the team, ask any searching questions that you, you want to ask and just understand what we're, we're really all about. And what I would encourage people to do is whether you're a private owner or a commercial operator, whether you, you love what we do or you're a skeptic, just come and understand because it never ceases to amaze me, despite all of the stuff that we push out through social media and through tradi traditional marketing, the vast majority of people that are skeptical about what we're doing haven't read anything. They don't understand what we're doing. So come and talk to us, because all we really want to do is make the helicopter industry better uh, and to make private owners have a better ownership experience and commercial operators have the most cost-effective and profitable platform that they've ever had to, until now. Unfortunately, I kind of feel like it's the world that we live in sometimes, right? We we all have outrageously wild opinions, but not a ton of knowledge to always back it up. Um, whether we're talking about 
politics or in this case, helicopters. Uh, so I appreciate you talking to me. Uh, I certainly had questions that I feel like you answered today. Um, and being part of the helicopter industry, I have no reason to want you to not be successful. Um, I think everything that you're pushing uh, is positive for the industry. Uh, the training and the safety obviously is paramount of my concern. Um, and it seems like there's nice mitigations in place specifically for private owners to help legitimize their ownership. Uh, it's absolutely true. All the qualities that made you successful in business don't necessarily always make you a great pilot. Uh, gravity doesn't care about the size of your bank bank account or ego. And so uh, I think it's really important that OEMs are, are focusing on that as uh, and knowing their clients. And it seems well, like you do. So I think, I think one, one of the, one of the things that's been very compelling about HX 50 in particular is the fact that we've designed uh, an aircraft specifically for inexperienced owner operators. So a three bladed high inertia main rotor system, a benign, uh, handling qualities rotor head, so it's easy to handle. There's not too much control authority, but enough to keep you safe in turbulence. We've got a high authority tail rotor. We've got large power reserves. Um, you've got autopilot as standard. You've got a crash-worthy fuselage, uh, and you've got a digital cockpit that massively reduces pilot workload. So all of those factors were designed specifically to make it easier to operate a uh, a light helicopter personally uh, and as a, as an inexper an, as an inexperienced uh, owner operator so we've very much because we make everything we've been able to deliver the machine that people really needed as well as wanted makes sense jason thank you so much for the time to our listeners of the helicopter podcast thank you so much make sure that you're following us on social media give us a like give us a follow and make sure that you subscribe to us on whatever platform you consume your podcasts we drop new episodes every single tuesday uh, and i know that uh, you guys will really enjoy it jason again thank you for joining the helicopter podcast thanks Elsie.